Tuameva mata cha pita tuameva. Tuameva bandhu cha saka tuameva. Tuameva vidyadra vinam tuameva. Tuameva saravam mamadeva deva. I bow to God as father, mother, friend, companion, riches, everything. And I bow to him in you. Today I would like to read from the book Conversations with Yogananda. Um, these are the passages 92 and 93. I was having great difficulty in quieting the mind. I felt an inner rebellion against the very idea of inner peace. Don't fight your mind, counseled the master. Treat it like a donkey. That beast is so stubborn that sometimes it won't budge even when it is beaten repeatedly. If its owner lets it stand still for a while, however, the donkey finally resumes walking again of its own accord. The best thing when your mind rebels is to let it stand a while. Don't be too hard on it. Let it make its point. After that, it will resume advancing of its own accord without being forced. And then, in the next saying, the master was a strong advocate at the same time of self-discipline. You must be tough on yourself, he used to say to us. He described a boyhood friend of his whose mother was raising him in a hard school. He was also hard on himself, the master said. His mother would beat him regularly, and he had to come to look upon her beatings as simply a fact of life. One day he climbed a tree and fell off it. He was able to cling to the tree trunk and slide down to the ground by keeping his arms wrapped around the trunk. When he reached the ground, his chest was all shredded and bleeding. We gazed at him in horror. All he said, however, was, what are you staring at? Hurry up, cover me up. Get some dust, get anything, plaster me over. Oh, my mother will beat me up. That's what I mean. Be tough. Don't baby yourselves. Well, there's a beautiful balance here. And Master was always balanced between opposites. On the one hand, he saw that I was being a little too hard on myself. So he said, don't be too hard because that creates tension. On the other hand, he didn't want us to become damasic. He didn't want us have us be too relaxed. So he did say, discipline yourselves. And uh, the two together, discipline with calmness, discipline with peace, discipline with relaxation. These are essential on the spiritual path. We must discipline ourselves, to use another word, with joy. There must not be that sort of grim sense of determination and deprivation that so many people have when they uh, try to grow spiritually. It, you know, there, there was a time, I suppose maybe it was a darker age, but uh, many devotees had the feeling that, like in the West, they, they would flagellate themselves, and many yogis who will lie on either, like the fakirs uh, who lie on beds of nails, or uh, people who would in various ways discipline their bodies unnecessarily. You know, Lord Buddha, he went through disciplines like that. 
I've even seen at the Kumbh Mela, you perhaps have been there and seen them too, sadhus with one hand raised all um, for years until the arm shriveled, or standing and never sleeping. There are a couple of interesting stories about that. One is of an American soldier during World War II who saw a sadhu sitting there, always his hand was upraised. He said, hey, Baba, are you waiting for fruits to fall in your lap? And the sadhu said with a charming smile, he said, well, why don't you raise your hands and see? And so the man raised his hands jokingly, and he found he couldn't bring them down. He said, oh, sadhuji, please help me to bring my hands down. The sadhu said, well, you haven't finished. The man said, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, pray for fruits. Pray for fruits to land in your hands. So he said, oh, Heavenly Father, please allow fruits to come into my hands. All of a sudden, fruits did come, and he, he said later they were delicious. So sometimes it does happen that when you deprive yourself in some ways, you develop powers in other ways. This is a part of it. There's another thing, too, and that is when these things are natural, they aren't. Um, they don't, they're, not, they're not starving your nature. I remember at a Kumbh Mela in Allahabad, I was seeing some people who never sat down and never uh, lay down, and their ankles and legs were gross, their faces were gross, their expressions were gross. There was nothing charming or um, delightful or blissful in their countenance. And uh, I was sort of mentally criticizing this, as Buddha did, but uh, then I happened upon one who had never sat down or lain down for 13 years. He had a thread around, like a sacred thread of a Brahmin, but it was a heavy thread that he could use to suspend himself from a tree when he slept. And I would normally have said that's a fanatical practice, but I had to say that for him it looked good because there was bliss in his face, there was sweetness and charm. And so, you can't judge. I was being taught a lesson for, not, for judging. I was being told, don't judge. You never know. Sometimes these samskars that are from the past make people behave in one way or another. The important thing is to be true to yourself. But Buddha, when he had done this for a while, he saw this isn't really bringing people what um, I'm looking for or what they're looking for. So he left those practices, and uh, that was when he sat under the Bodhitya Bodhgaya and said that, let body dissolve, but until life's mystery I solve, never will I move from this spot. And uh, after 40 days and 40 nights, I believe, he attained nirvana. So it is that the state that we are seeking must come, as he said later, by more moderate means. Now, you might say, well, but meditating and resolving not to move is certainly not moderation. It wouldn't be for most people, but it was for him. You have to, again, be true to yourself. And remember, too, that what Buddha attained was not just nothingness. So many people think that was so, but where did his compassion for come from? not from nothingness. When you are one with the infinite, when you are one with that infinite love, then you feel compassion. He was a great yogi. 
He was a great master. He was no different from the great rishis of ancient times. He's, it's not that he went into nothingness. He went in from nothingness. This is the way my guru explained it, that in the beginning, all human qualities cease. And then, suddenly in that seeming darkness, all of a sudden, the dawn of joy bursts upon you. Guruji's chief disciple went through a period like this. I think all devotees do. There was a time when for several days he was in darkness and didn't know what to do. But he kept concentrating here. And then out of that darkness came a light. And out of that light came his guru. And then behind his guru came his, guru, his guru's guru. And then Lahiri Mahashai, his Param guru. And finally, Babaji, and finally, emerged into the final awakening. Now, those Buddhists who think that they, all they are seeking is nothingness, and if they define nirvana as the end instead of samadhi, I know when I was in Thailand, I read an official document of the Buddhist group there, the Buddhists, and in there it said, comparing nirvana with satirdanandam, he said, well, it's true, in the beginning you feel a bit of bliss, but then nothingness. And I thought two things. One, who would ever seek sincerely to achieve nothingness? Nobody. And therefore they always just sort of think, well, I'll get there someday, but let me sort of hold off. Um, you can't sincerely seek nothing. But the truth is just the opposite of what that official tract said. In the beginning there's nirvana, nothingness a cessation of all waves, desires, everything. But then in that darkness suddenly comes the great bliss of Satchitanandam. This is why Shankaracharya came, not to correct Buddha. Buddha was a master. To correct the misunderstanding of his followers. All great masters, they come and then their disciples misunderstand and corrupt their teaching in one way or another. Shankaracharya, because he said that everything is, is uh, a dream of God. Therefore, they thought nothing is real. And so they, uh, people have a sort of a dry attitude toward God, forgetting that he wrote a whole series of beautiful poems to the Divine Mother. All these masters, all they do is bring, try to bring people back to their original point. It's an interesting thing. You know, Ramana Maharshi used to say that, uh, ask yourself, who am I? And his most advanced disciple was Sri Rama Yogi, with whom I got to spend four days in his village in Bhuchiradi Palayam in Andhra Pradesh. And uh, Sri Rama Yogi told me something about, well, you should ask yourself, who am I, and so on. I. I said, well, that's not what my guru taught. He said, listen, if all the disciples of the great masters did what the masters taught and understood what the masters taught, there wouldn't be all the bickering and fighting that you find in religion today. And I took his scolding as a good lesson. I accepted it. Because in fact, then I thought, well, of course my guru had said that. He'd used other words. But he always asked yourself, who are you? Behind this, what is the reality behind this ego? 
Again and again, in different words, he taught the same thing. We play too much with words. The different religionists are always using words. But Shankaracharya came to teach the same truth Buddha taught. And then because so many of his followers began thinking it's all a dream and we must have no devotion because who is to be devoted to whom? And so they became very dry. And then Ramanuja and Chaitanya and other great bhaktas came. And Chaitanya said something very, I mean, uh, Ramanuja said something very interesting. You know the story of his life? One time his uh, guru gave him the mantra, Om Namo Narayana. We sang that here a few times ago. And uh, his guru said, but don't, don't tell this to anybody. And at the same time, he said that you will achieve liberation if you keep chanting this mantra. And uh, he said to his guru, but anybody who chants this mantra, will he achieve it? Yes. So immediately he went and he stood on top of a temple and said, come one, come all. And he gathered a crowd and he taught them this mantra and they were all singing, Om Namo Narayana, Om Namo Narayana. And because he was a saint, he put them into ecstasy also. But uh, people then say, well, but then... Why do the Shastras teach? Don't, don't, don't share these teachings. Why is it kept a secret? It's not kept a secret to keep it from other people. It's kept a secret to conserve that power in yourself. People who boast what they have, lose it. People who talk about their experiences, lose them. What you experience of God, what you experience of his presence, keep that to yourself. Let it be a secret. But then the technique, this is why some people say, well, why can't Kriya Yoga be broadcast to the world? Well, certain people have broadcast it to the world. It's on the internet, it's in books, but you don't get the power that way. The power comes when you receive that Shaktipat from the Guru. The power comes when you receive the blessing of, of Diksha, of initiation. And then, um, if you harvest that in yourself, then the time comes when, yes, you can teach it to other people too, but don't spill your beans. Don't throw it all, scattering it to the winds. As Jesus Christ put it, don't throw your pearls before swine. You need to have a certain power in order to be able to concentrate. You need to focus your own powers, draw all those, those chickens of restless thoughts back into one focus and put it here. Then you can do that. Now, Ramanuja had achieved that, and therefore he was able to share it with other people. But the Guru was teaching a true principle, too. Now, another thing that Ramanuja did was to say that, yes, Shankaracharya was right, but there is something that you never lose. The soul, even though you merge into God, you never lose that soul. You know, that's something my guru explained, too. Nothing is ever lost. When you attain God consciousness, then you remember it was God who became you and then became God again. In that sense, your ego no longer exists. But there's still always that memory that that infinite one became your little ego and then became infinite again. And you can resurrect that. A devotee who calls to you can resurrect that 
that uh, personality, and it will still be your own self. It's not just some sort of an abstraction. Whatever you are, the essence of your own individuality, and everyone has that little germ of individuality, and it's different in everyone. Whatever you do in your incarnations, you may be a merchant or an actor or uh, anything, but you will be always a merchant, an actor or anything in your own particular way. You will always be you. Thus, I know, for example, some of my guru's past lives. And he always comes, yes, appropriately to the needs because he's, he was freed many lives ago, but he brings back that personality according to the needs of the times, but it's always that same essential he. he. He's never another kind of person. He said to us once that when I see that I have to reincarnate by God's will and take up a personality again, it feels a bit like a hot overcoat, a, a warm overcoat on a hot day, a little itchy. But uh, um, then I get used to it. But still, when you have that, you're always free in God. Like this song which I wrote for the life of St. Francis, Father, now that I wander with thee, flowers and fields seem alive with thy joy. Live in God and you'll find everything alive with him, and it won't be your ego anymore. Joy to you. Father, now that I wander with thee, flowers and fields feel alive with thy joy. All that I own to thee I give, and now I sing, and I love, I am free. Father, now that I dance in thy name, birds and animals share in my song, all my sorrows, all Sorrows, all my merriment, joy in you.